This is the VIP Podcast, Virginia in Politics. Let's listen to host Chris Saxman explore the personalities and policies that connect the Commonwealth. The VIP Podcast is brought to you by the VCTA, Broadband Association of Virginia and Virginia Free. The views and opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the VCTA and Virginia Free or our sponsors. Welcome back to the VIP podcast brought to you by VCTA, the Broadband Association of Virginia and Virginia Free. I'm the executive director of Virginia Free. Chris Saxman has served uh, four terms in the Virginia House of Delegates from 2002 to 2010. And along my journeys, met this gentleman to my left who uh, ended up becoming a circuit court judge, correct, sir? And uh, now is heading the parole board here in Virginia, Chad Dotson. Welcome. Good to talk to you again. Yeah, no, it's been a while. We actually talk. We usually do it through uh, Twitter DMs or texting and whatnot. Uh, the VIP podcast, Virginia in politics, also very important people. So congratulations. Oh, wow. To being, you know, it's official now. Set up a little straighter now. I would I like hope that. so. I would hope so. <laughs> since you have the summers off, since you're a Cincinnati Reds fan. <laughs> That's right. Well, didn't think I was going to work that in now, did you? That's all right. You're a Pirates fan. You can't say much about that. <laughs> I've, had, uh, I've had a lot of Augusts, when, <laughs> which we uh, lament. Uh, greatly. But let's uh, let's talk about your new role in the parole board. Uh, tell us what's going on there. Well, you know, I arrived uh, at the same time that the administration came in last year and, and found a, an agency that had basically descended into a little bit of chaos. It was just... Well, let's back it up. Sure. How big is the the parole board agency? How many people were there? Around 40 employees really? total. Wow. Um, but what I found was almost three quarters of those employees are part-time wage employees. It's just the, the agency had been an afterthought, really, unless it could be used for political purposes. It was really just an afterthought. It had been left sort of wither on the vine in the wake of 1995 with truth and sentencing and the quote-unquote... Because they had nothing to do. There was no parole. Right, supposedly. but uh, And there wasn't for a while, but the and numbers... there was. And then there was. <laughs> the numbers continued to grow. Um, obviously, in the last couple of years, the General Assembly has expanded who's eligible for parole a little bit. And our numbers that are eligible for geriatric release, which was created back in 95, those numbers are exploding at this point. Uh, eight years ago, there were 295 geriatric eligible inmates. This year, there will be over 1,000, and okay. they project it just to continue to Because they're aging out. They're aging, they're aging out, yes. Okay, so 40 people in the parole board, uh, abolition of parole 1995, uh, not much going on there, but you know, this is sort of the, the, the rise of uh, the change right. as it occurs. People aren't paying attention to it. And then what, what did you find? What are you, what are you seeing? Well, we found that, uh, you know, uh, and obviously the Attorney General's done a very in-depth uh, investigation, just found that um, policies and procedures were sometimes a hindrance to uh, what prior leadership wanted to do. And it had been, it had been a while since, since there was leadership in the building that actually showed up to work every day because the, they were around the state. Um, I'm there every day. And that was the biggest change that everyone saw immediately. They couldn't believe a chair was coming into the, into the office, which surprised me. But the, so you're, you're chair of the parole board. How many people on the parole board? There are five people on the parole board. Okay. At least three can be full-time, but right now we only have two full-time members, including me. Paid? Paid, yes. Okay, they're paid. And three part-time okay. now. Um, so, so five parole board members that make all the decisions on, on parole. On uh, We make recommendations to the governor on pardons. Okay. We have a, and we have a group, uh, an investigative group that does investigations for the governor oh, okay. on pardons. Um, and I got a group of parole examiners that actually meet and interview the inmates prior to us taking up their case and discussing and voting. When when you're looking at parole, what what are the parameters? I mean, I think probably the most most the famous one is in Shawshank Redemption when Morgan. I mean, that people because sure. people take that as like this is how it works. I hear that all the time. It, it, see, yeah. see, see. I mean, like so because we don't know what really goes on. Right. 
So basically, what really goes on? <laughs> well, I would like to get to the point where we can be more like uh, Shawshank in only one way, which is that we're in the same room, even if it's a virtual room, with the parole eligible inmate and speaking with them. The board doesn't, unless we go out of our way to do it, and this board tries to go out of our way to do it, we don't actually speak to the inmate. We have a parole examiner that does that. And that's just not a good process for anyone. Uh, not good for the inmate, obviously not good for us as we're trying to make these sort of solemn public safety decisions. Yeah, I mean, this is also a human thing. It is, it is. It should be humans, you know, looking at someone in the eye and going, right, from, you know, from, a, from a justice perspective, look the man in the, or the woman in the face yeah. and say yes or no. I mean, be able to do that. That's uh, Absolutely. We, we need to be looking victims in the face, listening to them, hearing what they say, and, and, and talking to them so they can see the process. And also, yeah, uh, these are human beings that we're dealing with. And we have over 3,000 parole-eligible inmates, and there's just functionally no way that three part-time board members and two full-time board members can meet with every one of them. So we are meeting with as many as we can. I actually have two board members today. They're going to one of the prisons to meet with three inmates in person wow. that are up for consideration. We're trying to expand the ways that we actually meet with them because I want more information in front of our board before we make decisions, not, not less. Well, and you uh, were a circuit court judge. Yes. Did uh, Explain your role or your... Uh, were you circuit court? Were you general district beforehand, juvenile district? Juvenile I was commonwealth attorney in Wise County, attorney. city of Norton. Okay. And then I was appointed to the general, general district court bench and was there for about... So basically traffic court? Basically traffic court, yeah. Okay. Second year law student could do it. Um, <laughs> then I was a uh, circuit court judge um, okay. and served one full so term. you've been through the judicial system. You were a prosecutor and then, right. and then you, you know, general district and then circuit court. So now you've seen in a relatively you know, young age, those elements, and now you're head of the parole board, what has been your experience in the effectiveness of the Virginia criminal justice system? Well, I think that uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a big question. You know, I think the Department of Corrections, by and large, does a good job in terms of rehabilitation for the people that are willing to, um, to work on themselves to rehabilitate. I think that uh, I've been amazed at the number of uh, people who are convicted as juveniles who really didn't get a first chance in many cases, and now they're asking for a second chance, who have really worked on themselves and really trying to do better, hoping to have a life someday. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that truth in sentencing in 1995 was by and large, in my experience, a good thing as a prosecutor and as a judge. It gave juries, it gave judges, it gave lawyers clarity when, when sentencing decisions were made, and I think it's a good thing. Um, uh, it's a little different. Uh, I guess I come at this from a little different perspective because I didn't really think about parole until I got here. Had, had really not thought much even about it Even as a prosecutor, even as a general district judge, even as a circuit court judge, you really didn't... You, you don't deal with it. You don't see it. Because it was abolished. Because it was abolished. That's what everyone uh, thinks. And, and because the, the agency was just sort of an afterthought. Uh, and you never never really have to think about it. We do our case and then they move on and I don't... Uh, you know, as a I, mean, judge, I think it's one of the reasons why this really hasn't really gripped people. Um, you know, I, and I have not read the Attorney General's report. Mm -hmm. You know, no, no disrespect there, just kind of busy. It's just, it's just <laughs> not it. like, oh, honey, excuse me, we're going to put the, the day on the... Uh, 70 page the, report here. Yeah. I'm going, Ugh. let's get this one <laughs> right. over with. You know, it, but I'm sure it's substantive uh, and is obviously starting to make some penetration into the political market and raising awareness to parole. But as you said, it's been out of our minds for the last 25 years. Well, and these decisions are just too important to be made in secret. And that's, right. that's what's happened. And I hope... Uh, that we can sort of open the process up a little bit. I would love to be able to get to a point, and we're working with, uh, you know, both parties are, are trying to work together in some sense uh, here at the General Assembly, and hopefully next session we're going to really be able to uh, swing for the fences. But 
it to open up so we can have at least at least quasi public hearings. You know, right. the media could be there. You know, mm. um, people can see what we're doing because you know when we're when we're voting in the shadows, then that's when you get the conspiracy theories, and they're not turn, they're turning me down because of this, this, this. And but you don't want that in the enemy population. It's not good. It's not but good. It's, it's damaging. It is every day to get your head off that pillow and go. I don't have a chance. So what am I going to do here? Exactly. And, and, and the human element from the from the inmates' perspective, but also from a safety perspective for our correctional officers, giving uh, you know, inmates something to work for helps protect safety within the institution, help maintain order. And I just, it's, it's the way we need to be doing things. And we're trying uh, with our limited resources right now, but I hope we can, uh, can open it up a little bit more. So Let's can... talk about the, the juvenile component first, because I had a, a case come up from my old district. Friends called, hey, this was going on, family member, cha-cha-cha, kids doing the right thing. Right. Everyone agrees. Uh, the, the person in charge of DOC didn't see it that way. Yeah. You know, and that's damaging. Because everyone in that facility where, the, where this, right. this, this young man is, is incarcerated, is a resident rather, they call them residents, uh, will see that. Like, if that guy can't get out, right? how does that help? <laughs> you know, it's uh, the juvenile population. Of course, in 2020, um, juveniles were made eligible. If they uh, were convicted as a juvenile and served at least 20 years of their sentence, they're eligible for parole. And that has been the most eye-opening thing for me was, was seeing this juvenile population. But you're right. Every decision we make sends a message, well, not just for that person. juvenile population. What, what are you seeing? What I'm seeing are... Um, we're seeing more and more violent crimes being committed by younger and younger people. We are. We are. And we're see, And it's part of the reason why I think we need to open it up is that in, not, not even in the majority of these cases, but there are a number of cases that really surprise me where you see this person and you're like, there's no way this person committed a crime. There's just no way this 42-year-old Right, committed a crime, and then you look back when they were sixteen, and the only thing that the that the public remembers about this person is that sixteen year old in the courtroom, and so it's been really eye opening to see the change that some of these people really work for before they had any chance at parole. Yeah, and that's what's been com- compelling to me. You know, I I, uh, I I come from a background where I presided over a drug court uh, for um, about about ten years, mm-hmm. and saw the power of when when you give somebody a, a chance, what that can do. Now. The majority of the people that come before us for parole just, uh, I, I can't in good conscience lay my head on the pillow at night voting to release them. That's just the way it is, uh, given what they've done and what they've done in, in the institutions, their behavior. Um, but the juveniles who weren't ever going to be eligible before, ha- now that we have to actually take a look at them, it's, it's been surprising. I think people, a lot of people, society would be surprised at what you see with that juvenile population. They're the most interesting, uh, compelling parole cases for me. Why is that? Just because, uh, by and large, the, the, the people who went into the... Um, Are they the most rehabilitatable? I think so. I think okay. so, because so many of them, your brain's just not developed. You know? Well, I mean, I look at pictures of myself back in high school or when I was in college, I'm like, and I literally say to people, is this me? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I remember being here, but physically, is this me? Right. And they're like, yeah, that's you. And I'm like, I have no idea. It's, it's so different from who I am it, 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 physically. Right, exactly. It's like mentally and emotionally, psychologically. It's a completely different person. I mean, and you'll talk to some of these people, and they are genuine. That I'm thankful that I got sent to DOC because I was in a position with no, you know, I'm a 16 year old hanging around with 25 year olds. Right. You know, that's the only direction I've got, um, and so it, it forced me to uh, grow up. And right. so again, um, I don't think people see that, and, and and probably some people on my side of the aisle may not see it that way. But when you get to actually look at these cases and see them. It's compelling that these are human beings that could have a chance at a life. And so we, I think we have to take very seriously those questions. We're not granting parole in a lot of cases. But I'll tell you this, every time I hit that button to not grant, it's as difficult a decision for me as it is to grant because that's someone's life that we're... You're feeling it. That, yeah, I mean, we should. 
We right. should feel that. Well, that's my whole point of the previous part of the conversation about being human in that element. Like, look, um, I look across that person right there. There's a camera here, a camera there. You know, you're, you're, you're here to here. It changes. It does. It, it does. changes. And it should, frankly. And so do you think there's going to be an element to, to change the juvenile justice parole system or the rehabilitation system? Because, you know, taking these kids, ostensibly kids, 19, 20-year-old kids, and saying, oh, you're going to the general population now. Yeah. Um, as a 14-year-old kid who might have committed a crime who didn't really know what he was doing, um, you know, and if, and if, especially if they're poor and had no proper representation, which I'm sure you've seen in the courtroom. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Too. Absolutely. You know, you kind of go, what, is there yeah. justice in here? Well, we can't retry the cases. That's difficult. But, I, but still, but, okay, but take it on, on face value what this, what this young yeah. person has done with their lives. He's on the right path. What do you do then? Well, yeah, who are they now is a huge, huge component. It should be a huge component to what right. we do. Now, obviously, what, what they did is going to be a part of it. Sure. But, you know, just a couple months ago, t- spoke to a young man who was sent to Red Onion State Prison at age 15. I mean, I, I can't imagine. What? I can't imagine being at Red Onion. At 15? At age 15. Oh, for, explain to the audience what Red Onion is and Wallens Ridge. And the, they're the yeah. top level of the DOC. They are. That's the, the high security. Supermax. Yes. Well, Red Onion is the, I don't know if they still call it Supermax. But Red Onion is the only one now. They're originally both Red Onion and Wallens Ridge. It, and there are six... Uh, levels of yes. DOC facilities, yes. and, and that's a six? That, yes, Red Onion is. That's a, and, and one is like geriatric on the way out, work release. Right. So they, they step them on down over time, yeah. and they, they work them through the system. And, and, but, but Red Onion is a, is a six. Yes. And if you're 15 going into a six? Well, it's somebody that was forced to join a gang, had never been a gang member before, but was forced to join one in prison because that's the only way he felt like he could survive. Absolutely. And, you know, at age 20, he put all that behind him, you know, um, once he's able to start thinking for himself a little bit. so But he um, survived while, I mean, Red Onion at the age of 15, 16. He doesn't survive. He thrived. Got his GED. He's working on an associate's degree. I mean, um, yeah, it's uh, these, every one of these decisions, one of, I was talking to one of my board members just before I walked in here, and he always says um, that he's a, he's, he's a longtime prosecutor. He's just sort of blown away by how difficult these decisions are if you do it right. And um, we're trying to. That's a, it's an, when you start putting, again, the human component of this thing together, and because because it has been you know abolished, it was out of our mind. We didn't have right. to deal with it. Yeah. And then when you do, when you start talking about these things, you're like, oh my gosh, this is this is harmful, dangerous, important work. And so the attorney general's uh, investigation on this, I don't know what you can and cannot talk about, but let's talk about the changes that you see coming in the parole uh, system here in Virginia. Well, you know, when I uh, first accepted the job, really I only had two, uh, I guess mandates is, is too strong a word maybe, but two. Uh, directives from uh, Governor Youngkin. First was follow the law, follow the policy and procedure. Pretty simple. Um, and I think that's part of the reason why my name was in the mix because uh, as a judge, you know, um, following the law is pretty important. The other was be open to second chances. And so that's, those two principles sort of guided what we're doing. That's what his, that was his guiding principle to you? Yes. Follow the law, but be open to second chances. Yes. And, that's pretty strong. It is. It is. And, uh, and you know, he, he's granted a number of, uh, of uh, Simple pardons. Um, you know, he, Governor Young is very open to second chances for those who have earned them. And so, what we've tried to do is the our, the procedures manual at the parole board hadn't been updated since 1996. The policy manual, right? exactly. <laughs> the policy manual had been updated in 2006, but not since then. So we did a full rewrite, um, and I hope today I'm hoping um, that it's going to be approved, and we're going to have those on the website and out in the law libraries at the, at the institution. So we just completely. I didn't know what the policies and procedures were, so I could follow them. And so we identified a number of areas, and you see them in the Attorney General report where um, policy was just uh, 
tossed to the side. So what we're, we're, we put into processes, for example, getting input from victims. In a number of cases, uh, getting input from victims before making a decision was an afterthought. You know, uh, prior, prior boards would uh, vote to grant parole and then go see what the victim thinks. Now, uh, you know, to their, to their credit, some of them, they would come back around and, and change their vote later uh, to not grant if they got input from a victim that, that swayed their opinion. Right. But it just, it seemed out of order to me to be vo actually voting on a case before you had all the information. So we put it in a process where we're meeting usually weekly uh, during the General Assembly session, that's been uh, upended just a little bit. We try to meet weekly, uh, no, no less than every other week, as a, as a full board. It's virtual, but, um, and with our staff. And every case that has any chance whatsoever of being a grant de uh, decision, I have five sets of eyes looking at those to make sure that we've contacted the victims, to make sure that um, we've done everything we could to locate victims. Sometimes we can't locate victims. Some of these cases are you know, 1973. I had a 1969 <laughs> conviction that the guy's wow. up for geriatric release now, yeah. Um, and so uh, we put in some pro place some processes to make sure that there's no way a case is gonna get out the door without us making every effort. Because that was victims. one of the, the arguments uh, about the, the problem with parole is that the victims weren't being contacted or the victims' families weren't being contacted, like this is happening. Yes. And, that's, and that was under law that they were supposed to. Yeah, you're supposed to give them an opportunity for, uh, for input. And so that was the first thing we had to do because that was what all the, the bad media last year, all the press was about, was victims not being contacted. So there's no way anyone will ever get granted parole under uh, the Youngkin Parole Board without every effort being made to locate victims and to not just get their input, give them a chance to talk to us, but actually consider it. You right. know? Um, so we put that into place. We started uh, requesting input from Commonwealth's attorneys before we make the decision. Now, sometimes uh, that's not valuable, but often it is uh, valuable to us because we are making, I keep saying public safety decisions, but these public safety decisions, who knows better what public safety looks like in a locality than the Commonwealth attorney and the law enforcement there. So, um, and we've been surprised that sometimes Commonwealth attorneys come back to us and say, you know what, I think he served enough time or that was an excessive sentence or wow, look what he's done since he's been in. They've, by and large, Commonwealth attorneys have been very open-minded and giving really? us genuine feedback rather than just a, I don't know, when I was Commonwealth attorney, I might've just said, no, I don't want him, I don't want him here. He was making him serve his sentence. Um, I would hope I wouldn't do that, but I might have, uh, you know, I was. Well, I mean, let's talk about that. You said you were a young prosecutor, um, you know, long-term, you know, a lot of prosecutors are looking to run for other offices and they don't want to be seen as weak on crime. Right. You know, and that's, that's a, that's a pull on the human psyche. Like, you know, this is, this is going to color my decision here that, you know, I don't want to be, I don't want this coming back at me. And we do see a little bit of that, that you sort of, uh, form responses, but mostly no, mostly it's, uh, really? Uh, thank you for asking my opinion, and here's my genuine opinion on it. And it's not, I see very little uh, kind of trying to cover myself uh, for the next election. Uh, I see them giving me the genuine opinion. Now, what the feedback they're giving us is not necessarily uh, public right now, so they're right. because we want their genuine opinion, but. Um, Those are private conversations? Well, they're, they're in our system, they're placed in the file, but it's not a public file. Okay, that part's not public. Right. Okay. I think it's important for them to understand look, just tell us what, what you really think before it's public and you know, we can make better decisions here. And, and there's an important element of like, you don't, the public doesn't have to see every element of the decision-making right. process for good decisions to be made. And th that, that um, demands a level of trust. And what, I think what you're trying to do right now is rebuild trust in the parole system. Is that fair? Oh, the, that's my number one goal has been, I've, I've said it a hundred times over the last year, we have to uh, rebuild the public's trust in this agency because the public has no trust in this agency. And so, um, you know, uh, my whole goal in terms of trying to open it up and let people see, if I want, if people could see our hearings, 
they would understand so much more. Some of these things need to be so maybe private, the public, the, the, having those meetings public would show people that you're going above board and doing it, the right thing. You know, we, uh, we underwent a, a sort of a huge research project at the agency to determine what other parole boards did around the country. Okay. And we sat in virtually on parole hearings in other states. You know, some states have a hearing where the Commonwealth attorney by, uh, well, district attorney there, but uh, by uh, statute is, has to be invited to the hearing. And it's a virtual hearing where the, the people that are making the decision on the board are, have the inmate there. Victims are given an opportunity if they want to. They can provide input other ways. But if they want to come to that public hearing and make their statement, they can. Um, advocates for the offender can make the case. And it was, just, it was eye-opening to me just to see the feedback that everyone in that room was able to get. Um, the victim was able to see if the person had changed. And they hadn't in some of those cases we watched, but uh, in some they had. The uh, inmate was able to interact with the people who were actually making the decision. And the board was able to give them feedback as, all right, well, here's what you're not doing that you need to be doing in the coming years if you want us to change our mind on you. So it's just a much better system and fewer questions, I think, than when you keep everything hidden. Right, right, right. That, make, oh, that makes perfect sense. Um, talk about the decision-making process. You're on the parole board. You have the information. What does former prosecutor, judge, general district judge, circuit court judge Dotson look for? Oh boy, that's uh, what's what's the? Yep, he's going to be okay. He, well, we can we can yes or no. What's 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 the fork in the road for you? There are there's no one thing I can say. There are so many things we look at. I mean, we do look at the seriousness of the crime. We have to, but that can't be our primary goal. We look at have they been behaving in, in the institution? Because if they've been behaving, if they, uh, if they haven't been, how are they going to follow our rules when we, when sure, we put sure. them out on the street? We think through, are there any conditions we could place on supervision on this person that would ensure that they're, uh, they're sure public safety, but also that they're successful out there? We look at what programs they completed. Um, and we also look at what programs are available to them because sometimes you don't have many programs, but if you're, you know, um, you have a long sentence, sometimes you're on a waiting list and you can't get into certain programs. And we don't want to we don't want to uh, ping anybody for mm. um, not doing a program. But we also may say, uh, let, let's see if we can get, can't get this guy into this program because this is one that he needs to get out. We look at um, what the counselors within the institution say about them, the people that see them day to day, and we're trying to find better ways to get more of that information right. into the, the heads of the uh, parole board. Um, again, a big thing for, for us on the juveniles is, what did they do before they were eligible for parole? When they thought they had no chance of being released, how did they behave? Were they trying to improve themselves? Because uh, that's a very compelling in terms of whether it's someone that's serious about changing who they were or someone's just trying to impress a parole board. Right, right, right. Um, we look at what the offenders say to our parole examiners. We get recommendations from our parole examiners that we take into consideration. So, and there's probably a hundred other things that we look at um, in every case, just like you know in a court. But it, is there is there a rhythm to this? Like you kind of after dealing with all these different people and the data and everything, what makes it happen? What's, what's, is there a secret sauce that ends up coming out of this thing? I, I, can't, I can't really identify it if there I mean, is. is. I mean, obviously, is, is just better behavior, improvement, you know, person I, moving in the right direction. You want to encourage that, obviously. I think just the, if you want to put sort of a, a 30,000 feet yeah. view is just, um, What's the story of who they were then versus who they are now? Okay. And how do they how do they get there? It always comes down to the stories, aren't it? It does. It does. And so it's, um, you know, we are implementing, I, I should have mentioned this earlier when we are talking about the juveniles, we're, we are hoping to roll out by April 1 a sort of risk matrix for juveniles to, because we we're required by code to treat them differently based mm -hmm. on demonstrated maturity, demonstrated, um, and the, the lesser culpability of juvenile offenders based on the Supreme Court's uh, rulings. And so um, we're going to have a more specific matrix that's hopefully going to allow us to provide better feedback. Yeah. 
long-term, I want to do the same thing with the adult offenders, more structured decision-making so that we can, we're in a better position to say, oh, here's what you're not doing. Here's what you need to do. Right. And um, so it's a, it's a long-term process. I think it's going to take us uh, four years, hopefully. But by the time we leave here, I really hope that we've substantially changed the way this looks for everyone in this and all the stakeholders. What's the, what's the, um, the similarity in the story on people who do break the law and are going into for a long period of time. What, what's the common element there that we as a society, and you would say to lawmakers, look, I do parole stuff, I see this all the time. If you had to go back and reconfigure their lives so that they wouldn't be making these mistakes and breaking the law and hurting other people, what would that be? Well, that's, a, that's the, the biggest question that we have in the public safety sphere, sphere obviously. I mean, that's what policymakers, I don't think, really talk about no. and focus on. Well. This is my opinion based on, again, I've been on all over the criminal right. justice system and I've been a, a criminal procedure and constitutional law professor as well. Okay. So um, uh, I, the, the family, it's the family unit, the breakdown of the family unit. I mean, that's my, that's my uh, policy opinion on it. The breakdown of the family unit is uh, we have so many uh, kids adrift. You know, speaking to a... Uh, I mean, are they all coming from broken homes or fatherless homes? Uh, not all, but... But uh, predominant. Predom absolutely. Like what percent? 80% up? I would say that. Yeah, again, I don't have those numbers, but it's it's in that neighborhood. Yeah. The 80, 90 yeah. percent? You know, I, yes. Yeah, yeah. I, I met with a 14, uh, uh, she's not 14 anymore, she's uh, 39 now, but she was 14. And her uh, her father, who was not a bad father, but they were divorced and he was out of state. And so I saw her. Uh, Still a fatherless home. Exactly. And the mother was having trouble with her and the mother was having to work two jobs. And she did something completely out of character and someone died because of it. And so she was convicted of uh, second degree murder, but she was 14. Uh, and again, I, you know, I don't know that we're going to vote to release her. I just don't know. We haven't uh, done that yet. But it's just so compelling to me to see someone who literally she was grasping for someone, some, some, some leadership, someone to, uh, um, to show her the way. And she had, she had no one. The middle school is a horrible time for everybody. A 14-year-old girl, I mean, right. Can, can you imagine? I mean, there's no sense of life at 13, no. 14, 15 years of age. There's not. I mean, we have, we've had four kids. Those years, and I tell parents all the time, and I used to teach that level. I'm like, yeah. focus on the middle school. If you can get them through middle school and they're on a decent yeah. academic track, they're going to be okay. It's true. Yeah, yeah. it's true. So, But it's the, it's the family breakdown. Well, that, that's what I see. I mean, it's just uh, kids who are grasping for someone. And so they latch on to, you know, the 26-year-old or the 28-year-old that's in the neighborhood sometimes or... Or no one, or they have no one. Well, they gravitate. They, they have to gravitate towards something. Right. Yes. I'm, that, that's just that's, that's human nature. It is. That's and we were sixteen year olds. You know how it is. There was a, there was a great uh, documentary. I think it's on Netflix still. Quincy Jones, mm -hmm. and he grew up on I think the South Side of Chicago, and he basically said, um, "I was either going to be in a gang until I found the piano, and what you see is what you repeat." Yeah. And I was raised around gangs, and my father, because my mother. She just had a psychotic break. My father took, Quincy Jones's father, right. took his family, the children, to Seattle. Mm -hmm. And I think he might have worked at the Boeing factory, whatever it was. And that's where he was able to get away from the craziness and the gang-related activities of Chicago. And there you have Quincy Jones, probably the greatest music producer of the 20th century. Otherwise, wouldn't have made it. Right. You know? And how do you hold that against a 14-year-old kid when his environment is not determined by him? Yeah, that's something we say all the time. It's not his fault. They may not be in a, in a situation where we can fault, release him. But. but it's his responsibility. It is. And they have to grow up with that responsibility all of a sudden because the, the justice system says, uh, no. Right. We can't, this can't happen. Yeah. And that's where you draw the line. But that, that element of the fatherlessness is, uh, is, is the predominant factor. I think so. You know, you mentioned gangs. Gangs are not something we see a lot in terms of gang activity and gang participation. That's not really something we see as in, in 
many cases at all that are coming before us. Really? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a lot fewer than I would have expected, I guess. I don't know. I really didn't have any prescriptions. As far as, as far as when the crime was committed? Yeah. Or in prison? Well, both. Both. Really? Yeah, it's 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 rare that and and DOC tracks very carefully gang membership and um, it's very rare that anyone comes up before us that has that gang history, unless it's something like yeah. And I think the general uh, uh, the thought out there, if you ask anyone walking down the streets of these halls of the General Assembly building, do you think gangs exist in prison? They'd be oh yeah, everyone's in a gang. <laughs> well, uh, it's not not the parole eligible. That may be the case because the parole eligible population is small, so maybe they're not for a reason because they uh, have a chance. Or they to parole. do aged out of it. Right. Right. Well, or a lot grew of out of it. A lot of them, but uh, we don't see that uh, that much at all. It's uh, it's been really eye opening um, to, to to see and, and, and evaluate all these cases that uh, for a lot of people have been forgotten, frankly. Um, and again, I don't want to. We are these are I talk about public safety all the time. Every single one of these decisions, I'm serious about. If I put somebody out on the street, I have to be uh, certain that they're going to succeed. We've got to put them in a you know situation they can succeed, but um, we have to be open to hearing the stories of those that have actually rehabilitated, have actually worked on themselves and are different. And if we're not, what's the point in, um, what's the point in Department of Corrections, you know, if, if we can't rehabilitate someone? So um, it, it, it's, a, it's a tough job. It's a- Well, is the correcting going on? I think it is. Okay. Is rehabilitation possible? Is it, you know, I mean, the, the general population is going, look, I don't, I don't want to think about crime. I want to go about my daily yeah. business. Uh, when it does happen, are they being punished? But I think if you sat down with folks, at the end of the day, they'd say, look, I want the person to be better. Yeah. Uh, even the victim's families would probably tell you, even as painful as this is, I would prefer that person to be a better person than not. Sure, sure. But it's, it's easier to say, let's lock them up, you know, and throw keep, away the key. Throw away the key, keep them there. That's the easy thing to do. Get them out of my mind. All right, yeah. The hard thing is to really evaluate, to, to actually try to rehabilitate them, which the Department of Corrections, I, I do believe does a pretty good job. They have the second best, second lowest recidivism rate in the country. Um, they have, you know, they work pretty hard at uh, rehabilitation. Some people can't be rehabilitated. They just can't. And then, so those are the ones you have to keep away. But the, for the, the, the population- How do those that come before you? You kind of go, look, this one is just not going to get the grade here. There are, there are a lot. A percentage. What, what would you say? I, I, I don't know that I can even put a percentage on that, uh, and I don't know that I want to because uh, I've got a, I got a group that uh, that uh, needs some hope uh, in order to you know get up every day. Well, again, we go back to the Shawshank Redemption. You know, we, right. that's a lot of people's perspe perspective, and yeah. a lot of quotes come out of that hope is a powerful thing, maybe the best of things. That's right. And they all and we all need hope. That's right. And uh, you know, is it what's the common element though? Is this not changing for those who are just not going to make parole? Yeah, yeah. Or is it age? Do they age out of it for the most part? Uh, I don't know. The, 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 the geriatric population that we have now, when you talk about aging out of it, some of them, have, some have aged out, and so you can you can say. But does age but has, is that a big factor? More time there. It it is a factor. It's absolutely a factor. Yeah. The problem is those that are in our geriatric population are largely those pre ninety five, and if they weren't released by the prior boards, there there are reasons why. You okay. know. The crime was just so heinous, you know. Okay. You commit four rapes. It's going to be difficult for me, uh, even if the rapes were in 1981, it's going to be difficult for my, uh, a board, a civilian board, to wrap their brains around being able to release that person. Now, we have to look past that to see what they've done since, but that's, that's still an element. These are, these are some of the right. worst, most violent crimes that are coming in front of us right, right. Uh, at this point. Because then it gets real. Exactly. We talk about these, we, we talk about, hey, we want to help people out. It's easy to do. And then you go, oh. Exactly. Maybe not. Exactly. And, and. Uh, do I, you know, do I want my name on, on 
yeah. this, this person if they go out and commit another crime. And the ones that I vote to grant parole, I'm perfectly willing because my votes have been public for years. I had to sign my name to every decision I made on the bench. Right. Um, so I'm perfectly willing to take a chance on the ones we're taking a chance on um, because I've done the due diligence. To, and I, I, someone that's, and does the parole board feel that sense of responsibility? I am, I am held responsible because of that person's behavior now? I've signed off saying this person's going to be okay for society? Yes. And, and actually, I meet individuals. That's a huge responsibility. It's a huge responsibility. I meet individually with every person that we grant parole to to have that discussion. I said, you, you don't owe anything to me. But I'm telling you, if uh, if you want society to believe that people can be rehabilitated and that you, the, the people around you should get a second chance, your behavior is going to be a driving factor in that. Because right. if you go out and are successful, we'll celebrate that. Sure. And um, I said, if you go out and your name's back across my de desk in uh, two months because you violated a condition of your supervision, then, well, that's an argument against parole. Uh, so it's a... Uh, Have you had a situation where you've gone, oh... Back you go. Not yet. Okay. We have had some parolees that were released under previous boards. You know, no one that we've released yet has uh, has uh, violated their conditions. So far, so good. So far, so good. So we'll knock on wood there. But, I'm sure you are. Um, but we're trying to do our due diligence to make sure that the ones we release not only are good bets, but also that we're putting them in a place with the support system to be, to, to, to be able to succeed. You know, everyone, everyone wants to. You're a 16-year-old, and you go out at age 46, you don't know how to open a bank account. You don't know how to shop for groceries. Right. You don't know how to pay your electric bill. <laughs> this is all you before know. the iPhone, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Seriously. So it's, Let um, me tell you about apps. <laughs> exactly. And that's what we talk about. If they been delivered, I wouldn't have, you know. <laughs> that's the question I ask them. What are your biggest challenges? Let's talk through some of this stuff. Yeah, that's interesting. We release them. So. All right. The Honorable Chad Dotson, thank you for your work on the parole board. Wish you the very best of luck. A new VIP here at the VIP podcast, Chad Dotson, the Honorable. Uh, this podcast is brought to you by VCTA, the Broadband Association of Virginia and Virginia Free, of which I'm its executive director, available to you on Spotify, Apple, and YouTube. Please like, share, and subscribe. Thanks for joining us.